Amen. You guys can be seated this morning. Daryl jokes about us going to Utah and not coming back. Um, you know, at one time that was a dear place, and it still is a dear place in, in our hearts. We got married and moved out there and lived out there for several years, but going out there again um, just reminds me of how much <laughs> I love this place and love our church here. And you know, another church is great. There's other believers there, dear brothers in the Lord, but there's nothing like being home. So, so it's just good to be with you all this morning and uh, worship with you all. So if you want to open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 8, we'll be continuing our study through the Gospel of John. It was great to get to hear Bruce's sermon last week on the, the book of James, very practical sermon on how to suffer well through trials, trust in the Lord. Um, but if you remember a couple weeks ago, we, we were beginning the John chapter 8, and now we continue on as we go through this chapter, this wonderful chapter. And a couple weeks ago, we talked about Jesus being the light of the world, this great I am statement that Jesus proclaims, and that will carry through the end of this chapter. This great statement, he stands up and says, I am the light of the world. And this is one of several I am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. He talks about being, I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life, we saw in John chapter 6. And these I am statements of our Lord, they reveal something not only about his messianic identity, who he is as a good shepherd, as the bread of life, as the light of the world, but about his mission. That he didn't just come to be a good example, but he came to seek and save that which is lost. And so this idea of Jesus being the light of the world is not only talking about his identity, who he is as the Messiah, as the Christ, but his mission. And so we talked about that several weeks ago, Jesus being the light of the world. But in today's passage, we'll see another type of I am statement. An I am statement, not one that ends with some sort of object, I am the light of the world, I am the bread of life, but simply a statement of our Lord where he says, I am, period. I am, full stop, period. This is a statement that our Lord makes several times in this chapter, and at the end of the chapter, he'll say this great statement, before Abraham was, I am. This is a different kind of statement. This is not a statement revealing Jesus' messianic identity or his mission as the Messiah. This is one where he's revealing his divine identity, his divine nature. That he is not just a man in flesh, but he is the incarnate one, the second person of the triune God. And so in this passage this morning... Jesus' aim is to reveal himself, to describe who he is, that he's not just a man in the first century who walked amongst other men. He is the God of the universe. And Jesus' aim in this passage and in his self-revelation is in one sense a right understanding of who he is. He wants these people to know him rightly so that they can worship and adore him rightly. So there's a sense in which this passage is about true doctrinal knowledge, theological knowledge, if we want to use that word. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop at just knowledge of who Christ is as the I am. But ultimately, Christ's aim, and our aim this morning, is not to just have knowledge of who Jesus is, but to have saving trust and belief in him as the I am, as the one that can save us from our sins. 
So that's what we're going to see this morning. There's going to be lots of pushback to this, but ultimately Christ will reveal himself and proclaim himself to be God of the universe. So I'm going to read our passage this morning. I'll pray for us, and then we'll look at God's word. Begin at verse 21. This is the word of the Lord. So he, that is Jesus, said to them, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come. But he said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, he, or literally I am, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, Many believed in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. Your infallible, inerrant word. Your revelation that you have given to us, your people. That we might know you rightly and worship you rightly. And Lord, although we know that there are many great truths in your word. Many things that we um, can confess and can say with our lips and maybe even know with our minds, Lord, we also know that it takes a work of your spirit to reveal and illuminate the light of the gospel to our souls. And so we pray this morning that you would give us revelation of who you are, that you would reveal to us the person and work of Christ, that he is not only truly God, but truly man. And that we would rest on him alone for salvation this morning, receiving all the benefits that he has won for us, and that we would trust in him for eternal life. We need your help this morning. We ask and pray that you would do these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So we, we come to this passage, and there's and there's a couple ways to break this down, and we'll do it in three ways this morning. First, we'll look at Jesus as he describes himself as not being of this world, that he is not of this world, that there's a unique quality and nature to this Christ figure. Secondly, we'll look at Jesus as he presents himself to be the I am. What does that mean? What is he saying there? And then finally, we'll look at Jesus as the obedient son. So Jesus begins in verse 21, he says, I am going away. He says, I am going away. This is talking to about his ascension, that he is telling these people, these religious leaders that are, have been persecuting him, they've been trying to arrest him, they've even been seeking to kill him. He's telling them, 
I'm going to go away. I'm going to ascend, is ultimately what he's saying. And this is really a reference back to verse 14 of John chapter 8, where he tells them that his witness, his testimony, is worthy to be believed because he knows where he's going and where he's come from. So Jesus knows who he is. He knows his heavenly origin. He has come from heaven. He's been sent on a mission by God. He is going to complete that mission. And in his ascension, he's going to return to the Father in his human nature. And it's interesting because what's the next thing he says? He says, I'm going away. But then he says, you will seek me, but you will die in your sins. So they're seeking him. There's a sense in which these people are seeking him, but it's for the wrong reasons. It's an earthly seeking. And if you want to go with me, just one page back in your Bibles, maybe depending on how your Bible's laid out, to John verse, John chapter 7, verse 33 and 34. We see a parallel passage, almost identical construction to the verse that we looked at this morning. That Jesus says this in chapter 7, verse 33. I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Almost identical to what we see in verse 21. I am going away, you will seek me, you will die in your sin, and where I am going, you cannot come. So there's this parallelism that we see here, where Jesus is... He's not just saying the exact same thing, but he's actually intensifying and elevating what he said before. So in both instances, Jesus says he's going to the Father. He is going away. He's going to sin. That people are going to seek after him. They're going to seek him, maybe even in his earthly ministry. But where before he said, you will not find me, this time he says, you will die in your sins. That this is Jesus describing the fallen condition of the people that were seeking after him. They wanted earthly things. They wanted to seek him for earthly reasons. Maybe it was to kill him. Maybe it was to see him lifted up as an earthly Messiah, an earthly earthly king. But in this instance, Jesus says, you will seek me in this sense, but you will not find me. You You will still remain dead in your sins and trespasses. This is what we read in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, what Daryl pointed out this morning, that this is the condition of all human people born from Adam. That going all the way back to the garden, man was tempted, man fell into sin, and so sin and death reigned through all men. And as we read in Ephesians, Paul says that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. And so Jesus is saying, you will remain dead in your sins and trespasses, even if, you, even if you're seeking me for these wrong reasons. And so what he's saying to these religious leaders is really what they wanted was to kill Jesus. They were seeking him, but it was ultimately not to adore him, not to receive him as the Christ, but ultimately to kill him. They didn't want to hear his message. They didn't like that he was bringing up their sins. He didn't like this message of judgment and righteousness that Christ was bringing. They wanted a king that was going to free them from the Romans. They wanted an earthly king. They did not want the message that Christ was bringing. And so Jesus is confronting him and saying, you will seek me in these wrong ways, but you will remain dead in your sins. And so how often do we see this kind of seeking in our day? 
a seeking that's focused on a Christ, maybe a Christ-like figure, but not the true and living Christ. Many people seek for a God made in their own image, one that looks a lot like them, one that looks like, that accepts everything that they accept and rejects everything that they reject, and it doesn't confront them in any way. And Jesus is saying, you might seek after me, you might seek after me in this way, but there's a false seeking that is being talked about. And then we could go all the way back to John chapter 2, where it says people were seeking Jesus because of the signs that he was doing, but he did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man. He knew the condition of their heart. They were seeking him, but it was for the wrong reasons. And ultimately, he tells them where he's going they cannot come with him. So what do they have to say to this? What do, they, what do they have to say about this message of judgment, that they were going to die in their sins? Do they, do they break down in repentance? Do they fall on their knees and worship? No. They downplay what Christ says, and they mock him. In verse 22, they says, will he kill himself? They think Jesus is talking about suicide here. They're, they're sort of making light of his statements. Notice they've ignored the sin. They've ignored the death part. They, they've taken that out of the equation. They're not even going to focus on that. They're just going to mock and downplay what Jesus has said. But Jesus, he stays with them, and he, he gives the grounds of his statement. He gives the, the foundation of why he can say what he can say. And he says that in verse 23. He gives the ground, the reason, the why. Why is this so? Why is he going away? Why can they not come? Why will they seek after him and still remain dead in their sins? And he tells them several reasons, several things. First, he says several things about them, about who they are, about what their nature is. He says, you are from below. You are from below. You are of the earth. You are a creature. You are a creation. You are of creaturely things. You are not the divine creator. You are from below. You are of the earth, earthly minded. And then he says again, you are of this world. And so he's pointing out that in their sinfulness, this is often how John in the later epistles will talk about this idea of being in your sins is of the world. You are of this world. So not only is he talking about this as in a sense that these people are part of the world because they're creatures, he's also saying you are worldly minded. You are worldly minded. You are worldly in your thinking. You are sinful, corrupted, carnal. You are from below. You are of this world. But he contrasts that with himself. He says, I am from above. You are from below. I am from above. He's telling the people that he's not like them, that he is ultimately from the Father, that his origin is from heaven. He's not, he was born of a virgin, but that is not his ultimate origin. He is from heaven. And not only is he from above, but then he contrasts finally by saying, you are of this world. I am not of this world. That there's a sense in which he's saying, I am not of this world. And we can say, if we go all the way back to John chapter 1, he's the one that created the world. He's the one that in whom and through whom 
created all things, that he is the one that holds the world together, the creator of the world. I like what Augustine said. He said, can the one who created the world be of the world? No. <laughs> he is wholly separate from the world. He is the creator and sustainer of the world. He is not of the world, but the creator of the world. And so there should be something puzzling in our minds as we hear Jesus say this. And I think that is what the people of this day would have been, would have been thinking too. There's something puzzling about what Jesus is saying because he's a man standing before them, telling them that he's not of this world. Now, if somebody came to you and said, I'm out of this world, you'd think, what are you talking about, you know? But Jesus is saying, I am not of this world. And so there would have been a puzzling thought in their head because Jesus has just contrasted his nature with their nature. They are from below. He is from above. They are of this world. He is not of this world. And this would have been puzzling to them. What do you mean you are not of this world? You're standing right in front of us. You're a man just like us. I can see you. I can touch you. What do you mean you are not of this world? Who do you think you are? And Jesus replied to this. Jesus answered to this question that would have been roaming around in their heads is, he says, I am. He says, I am. Jesus in verse 24 says to them, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now, most of our translations here add the word he after. If you look, if you have the ESV, it says, I am he. But that word is not in the Greek. It's, it's, it's um, supplied by the translators. The Greek is ego eimi, I am. And so... They supply that word because it sort of makes sense in, sort of, in, sort of, in terms of sentence structure, right? Just to say, I am, is sort of an incomplete thought. But that is not, if you literally translate it, it says, unless you believe that I am. And so the question is, I am what? I am, what's the end of that sentence? But Jesus is saying, I am, unless you believe that I am. He's saying, this is ultimately what he's saying. Unless you believe that I am God, I am the divine one. I am the true and living God, period. Full stop, no additions, no subtractions. I am God. Why does he say this? Because he's, it's, it's, it's very important that we understand this. Jesus is saying, you must believe to be saved that I am. You must believe that I am God, very and eternal God, the eternally existing one, the one who did not come to be, the one who will not someday be, but the one who is the I am. And this is precisely, as we read this morning, the name of God that he reveals to Moses in the Old Testament, in the account of the burning bush, the name that God will share with no other person or created thing. And in Exodus 3.14, God says, tell the people, I am who I am. The I am has sent you. <laughs> kind of a weird, sounds strange in English. I am has sent you. Moses is 
He's fearing. He doesn't want to go to the people without the name of this one who sent him. He says, the people are going to ask me, what is his name? And God says, I am who I am. Tell them the I am has sent you. The one who always was, the one who is, and the one who always will be. The one who is in and of himself. This is divine aseity. The one who is unchanging, who does not pass away or fade, who doesn't come into existence, who will not cease to exist, but the one who is. The one who is infinite, eternal, who does not come into being, but is. Augustine on this, um, on this passage said this, When one analyzes the creature, you will find was and will be. He's saying, when you, when you look at creaturely things, think of us, right? There was a time when we were not. On this Mother's Day, we remember that, right? <laughs> at one time we were not, and then we were. So there was a time when we were not, and there will be a time where we cease to, our bodies, our souls are separated from our bodies. So he says, when you analyze the creature, you will find the was and the will be. But when contemplating God, you will find the is. Where was and will be cannot exist. Hmm. When we contemplate God, we find the is, the I am. Not the I will become, not the one day I will be, but the I am. Where there is no was and there is no will be. Us as creatures, we change, right? We, we, we change. Not only did we not once not exist and come into existence, but even in smaller ways we change, right? We get taller, we get shorter, we lose hair, we maybe grow hair, whatever. I don't know why I'm thinking about hair. But, right, we change, right? And so God is not like that. And so when God reveals to Moses and through the scriptures, when he says, I am, he's saying, I am the unchanging one. I am the God who does not change. The ising one, I think, as James Dozell said at the conference. The ising one, the one who is and will be forever. And so when Jesus says, you must believe that I am, it's not an incomplete sentence. He's saying, I am God. He's identifying himself as Yahweh, the creator, the unchanging one. And as we referenced in John chapter 8, later he will say, Right before they pick up stones to throw at him, he'll say, before Abraham was, I am. Not I am something else, but the I am. And they pick up stones to throw at him because they knew what he was saying. They knew he was saying and articulating equality with God. And this is much of what was fought for in the first several centuries of the church, the full divinity of Christ. Many heresies came in, many, many false doctrines came in, and they wanted to chip away at the foundation of the full divinity of Christ. Well, maybe he was just the first creation of God. Maybe he was the best creation of God, but not fully God. Maybe he was sort of a spirit that hovered around. All of these things happened in the first century. And so the great creeds and confessions that we confess often help us articulate. And the Nicene Creed says this, that he is very God. A very God. Not the first and greatest creation of God, but one substance with the Father. Not one who laid aside his divinity in the incarnation, but who always was the I Am. Amazing. 
Jesus is saying, unless you believe this, unless you believe in the full divinity of me, then you're dead in your sins. And so we can see that this is not just a theological knowledge for the sake of theological knowledge. This is not just doctrine for the sake of mental space, but it has a redemptive emphasis. He is not only saying that he is God, the Son of God, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father, but he is saying, I'm the one that took on flesh, that came to die and save people from their sins. You need to believe on me, or there's no other hope. There's no other hope apart from this. This is what Jesus is saying, that there's no other hope of being saved from their sins. He says, you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am, that he is truly God and truly man, fully God and fully man. Not only that, he came as the son of man, the one that would accomplish our salvation, but as the son of God who by his spirit would apply that work of redemption to his people and bring eternal life to his people. But we see in this passage not only the greatness of Christ's profession as the I am, the all the all-knowing, the eternal one, the absolute one, but we also see the great power and strength of sin. That he says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. That sin is so great, that its power is so vast, that it takes God himself taking on flesh to penetrate that darkness, to invade and intervene and shine the light of the gospel. That it, it was not, Jesus was not just a good man. He was not just a good example that lived a good life, and so we're just supposed to follow after that, and if we do enough good things, then God will bring us to heaven precisely the opposite. We are those that are dead in our sins and trespasses, and it takes God himself, humbling himself to the point of death to bring about salvation. And that's what Jesus is saying in this passage, and yet we see the blindness of the people. We see the thick blindness. We see them darkened in their understanding. They remain dead in their sins and trespasses. And this brings us to our third point this morning, Jesus, the obedient son. That look at the question they ask him in verse 25. Who are you? Who are you? He just got done telling them who he is. He is the I am. And they're saying, who are you? It's, it's, it's unfathomable, the, the, the darkness and the blindness that we see here. And yet we know it very intimately because we ourselves were once this blind. He says, just as what I've been saying from the beginning, he says, I'm not telling you anything new. I've been saying this from day one, and yet you will not change, yet you will not turn. We could go through all the chapters of John, all the chapters of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and see the same thing. Jesus does not articulate different things about himself, but the one eternal nature of God. He says, I've always declared what I've heard from the one who sent me. He says, I'm always doing the Father's will. There's not a time where I was not doing that. I've always done and always declared what I've heard from the Father, and yet they do not understand. John tells us in verse 27, they don't understand. They don't know that he's even speaking about the Father. They don't understand the triune God. They don't understand the incarnation. They're lost, they're darkened, and they're blind. And so it's important that we see what Jesus articulates in verse 28 through the end of the, the passage there in verse 30. 
that the Son is not only very God of very God. The Son is not only co-equal and co-eternal with the Father, but we see in verses 28 through 30 that in his incarnation, in taking on flesh, the Son of Man that would be lifted up, that he would become obedient to the Father, even to the point of death. He says in verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, This is a reference to his crucifixion, that he would not only be whipped and beaten and mocked, but he would ultimately be lifted up on a wooden cross and suffer and die. As we sing in one of our hymns, light of the world by darkness slain. That the one who always did the Father's will, the one who spoke the words of the Father, the one who was taught of the Father, would be crucified, would be di- would die, would be buried in a borrowed tomb. The light of the world by darkness slain. And yet, even in this, this is precisely the means by which, in his suffering, in his agony, in his humiliation, this is the means by which that will result in his great glory and exaltation. What's he say? When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. He's saying it is precisely by my humiliation, by my suffering, that will result in my glorification, in my exaltation as the enthroned king. Then you will know that I am. That this Son of Man would know no sin. He would always do the Father's will. He would always do what the Father commanded him. And he would become obedient even to the point of death. But that this death, this lifting up, this suffering that he would undergo would not only result in the salvation of his people, but would result in the glory and exaltation of Christ. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, we see the Apostle Paul emphasize this two states of our Lord, that he not only came in humiliation, but ultimately to be exalted at the right hand of the Father. This is what Paul says in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. He says, This Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now notice this change. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That Jesus here is saying, I am the Son of Man. I am the one that's going to be lifted up. That suffering, that humiliation, that sorrow that I'm going to undergo, that agony, it's not my defeat. It is that by which I save the people that I've been sent to save and then exalted at the right hand of the Father. And that's what Jesus goes on to say. I do nothing of my own authority. I'm going to come and do the Father's will. I'm going to accomplish salvation. He who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone. I've been empowered by the Spirit to do this work. 
and I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And we see it in verse 30, we see this almost glimmer of hope. It says in verse 30, and as he was saying these things, many believed in him. And if we were to stop right there, we think, great, they understood, they, they got it, right? It says they believed in him. But as we will continue our study in the following weeks, we'll see that even though many believed in him, in a sense, their profession is short-lived. The same ones that say they believe in him are the same ones that pick up stones to try to stone him. And that even though there is this external light that has been revealed to them, Jesus has said, I am. I'm the one that's going to be lifted up. I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be lifted up for the salvation of sinners. Yet even though there's an external light, as one commentator said, there is a lacking of inward illumination. And so as we contemplate and try to think about what this passage means for us here today in um, at Covenant and how we can think about this passage rightly, two things we need to think about. That there is only one way to be saved from our sins. There's only one way that we can go from death to life. There's only, way we, only one way we can go from darkness to light. The path is narrow, as Jesus was saying in the Gospel of Matthew. There's not multiple ways. There's not many different ways that we can be saved from the judgment of God. There's not many different ways that we can be saved from the power and effects of sin. There's not many different ways that we can be relieved from the condemning power of the law. There's only one way. And the world, in its worldly ways, those that are from the world, know that the world invents many other ways to be saved from this dying in our sins, right? Many other false gospels, as Paul will say, have gone out. Many other false Christs. We know this very well in the culture that we live in. You just turn on the news or any sort of television for five minutes. You see many different things that the world pulls us to. Oh, you want to be saved in a sense. Go here. You want to do this. See that. And there's so much in our world, in our present time even, about this idea of liberty, of freedom, right? We want to be free from everything. We want to, we want to break the bonds of everything. And so freedom is a good thing, but, but our culture and our society takes that to far, far extremes, where this idea is to just be free of everything. And it's interesting what Jesus will say in these next couple of verses that we'll look at next week. He says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. No matter how hard the world tries to be free, right? There's many different slogans and sayings. People just think they can, they are the sovereign. It's all about the self. And yet we see that anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And so the world is in bondage. And even though it, it tries to be free, it tries to proclaim its own liberty and freedom, we know that it is still enslaved to sin. And as Jesus said today, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And so us this morning, we have one hope. We have one hope of salvation. We only have one way. There's only one way of righteousness. And even though there's much false doctrine, there's much errant teaching, there's much idolatry, even worldly persecution that people would try to employ against the church to try to get them to, to bend the knee to any and all who would bring up false gods, we this morning have hope. There's a, there's a hymn in our hymnal, 
hymn 288. It's called The Church's One Foundation. It reads like this, verse 1. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Then it says this in verse 3. Though with a scornful wander men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morning song. That even though many things come against us as Christians, as believers, the word, the world rages against us, the night of weeping seems close, heresies creep into the church, tempt people to believe false gospels, false Christ. We have one hope this morning, and that's to believe that Jesus is the I Am. That he is the one that took on flesh, bore the wrath of sin, that he is God of God, light of light. Not just a good teacher, not just a good moral example, not one who laid aside his divinity, not one who was eternally submitted to the Father, but the true and living God. One substance with the Father, very God of very God. And yet, this is not just a pure intellectual knowledge. You could memorize the Nicene Creed and be lost in your sins. You could memorize all of John chapter 8 and be lost in your sins because Jesus says, you've searched the scriptures, but they speak about me. And so this morning, what are we called to do? What are we called to believe? We're not just called to know things about God, but we're called to trust in him alone for salvation. It says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What did we read this morning in our confession of faith? How are you made right with God? Only by true faith. Only by true faith. By receiving and resting on Christ alone for salvation. True knowledge of who God is and who Christ is is important. It's essential. We cannot leave that to the side. But it is not everything. What we must do is trust and believe in who Jesus said he was and receive and rest upon him alone for salvation. Not only that God is able to save, but that he is able to save you. That he's able to save you from your sins. That you who were dead in your trespasses and sins may be made right with God. Might be made alive, as Paul would go on to say, by trusting in the I Am. The one who took on flesh and died for our sins. The, historically, what people have referred to as a, an, how they describe faith, it's not just a knowledge of a thing. It's not just assenting to that thing, but it's trusting that thing. I can know a chair exists. I can know what a chair is, but I'm not trusting in that thing until I rest on it, <laughs> until I let it carry my weight. And so this morning, as we think about John chapter 8 and what it means that Jesus is the I am and that we are dead in our sins unless we trust in him, that's the picture we need to have. It's not just knowing who Christ is. It's not just knowing that he existed, but it's resting on him alone for salvation. That is our hope this morning. There's no other hope. There's no other road. Let's look to Christ this morning and rest on his grace. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for sending Christ in the fullness of time. 
And we confess this morning that, Lord, we are very weak, that we are tempted in many different ways, not only externally to, to, to succumb to persecution, to deny who you are to the world, to deny you by our works and our words. We're tempted by the idolatry of this world. We're tempted to trust in our own devices. We see the philosophies of the world, the things that come against us, the lies and deception, and we're tempted to succumb to that. And even in our own hearts, even in our own lives, we're tempted to believe false things about you. We're tempted to doubt your goodness, to doubt your plan, and to doubt that you could save someone as sinful as us. And yet this morning we come resting in Christ, knowing that it is not our works that make us right with God, but it is the work of Christ alone. He is the I am, the only one that could come and not sin, the only one that could come and perfectly fulfill the demands of the law, and the only one that could take his accomplished work of salvation and apply it to us by the Spirit. And so this morning we rest in Christ, we rest in his finished work, and we pray this morning that you would convict us where we need convicting, and that you would assure us of your grace, that you are able to save sinners. It's not the righteous that you call, but sinners to repentance. And so this morning we come confessing, repenting, but believing that you are able to save to the uttermost those that draw near to you by faith. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.